It's this kind of weird time between Christmas and New Year's when all the pastors and everybody leaves and, and you're left with me. And <clears throat> um, Scott and John are actually in Mexico uh, right now in Rosarita Beach, building some houses and taking care of kids and working with the poor down there and, um, and sharing the Lord with a team from church and uh, doing some great things. So Scott asked me if I wouldn't mind uh, stepping in and sharing with you uh, my ideas on kind of planning for the new year. And I told Scott, I said, you know, I only get to do this once a year, so I, I'm going to give him everything I got. And he said, okay, okay, go for it. So just, as, just a warning, you getting everything I got this morning. <clears throat> I want to start off with one of my favorite stories from one of my favorite books, John Ortberg's The Life You Always Wanted. And um, in this book, he has a section called The Man Who Never Changed. I'm just going to read it to you. Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it at someone else's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. We could all, he would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he worked hard to make sure everyone stayed humble. His native tongue was complaint. He carried around judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A deacon in the church asked him one day, Hank, are you happy? Hank paused to reflect and then replied back without smiling, yeah. Well, you better tell your face about it, the deacon replied. But as far as anybody knew, Hank's face never found out. Sometimes Hank's joylessness ended in comedy, but more often it ended in sadness. His children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about how he met his wife at a dance, but he never told his father because Hank didn't approve of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children, or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor and a casual contempt for those with accents or skin pigment different from his own. Whatever capacity he once may have had for joy or wonder or gratitude had atrophied. He critiqued, he judged, he complained, and his soul got a little smaller every year. And then John goes on to say this. <clears throat> he once was a cranky young guy. He grew up to be a cranky old man. But even more troubling than this lack of change was that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected his soul would remain withered and sour year after year, decade after decade. We didn't expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if he were in Hank's place. You know, I think we probably all know somebody like Hank. Hopefully you're not sitting next to them. I don't know about you, but I, I read that story and I don't want to be Hank. But just turn to somebody next to you and just say, I don't want to be Hank. Just go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right? 
right? We want to grow. We want to flourish. We don't want to become sour and stale and, um, you know, like Hank. And yet, as we come to the end of the year, ask yourself, are you changing? You know, we call it the fruit of the Spirit, right? When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, what's supposed to happen is we become more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient. So would your spouse say that you are more loving now than you were at the beginning of 2014? Would your kids say that you're more joyful than you were at the beginning of 2014? Would the people that you work with say that you're more peaceful at the end of 2014 than you were at the beginning? You see, none of us want to be like Hank, but are we really changing? Are you really becoming more like Jesus? I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. One of the things that I always do this time of year is I look back, and I just kind of evaluate the year, and I look at um, you know, what went well, what went lousy, what were the good things, the highlights, and the low points of the year, and then I look at my, my um, plan for the year, my goals for the year, and I just measure, you know, did I reach these goals? What goals did I not reach and why? And I just do a little bit of self-reflection um, re- on what happened during the year. The other thing that I always do at this time of year is I, I plan um, for 2015. I, I, I get away to a, it's a solitary place uh, where there's no distractions, and I just plan for 2015. And the way that I do this is I put myself mentally at the end of 2015. And I take out a blank piece of paper and I write what happened during 2015. 2015 isn't quite here yet, but I'm looking backwards and I want to be able to feel what it it means to accomplish those goals. One of the things on that blank piece of paper, the first thing I do is I write my top six core values on top of that paper. So for me... That's spirituality, family, meaningful work, integrity, pleasure, and lifetime learning. And so for me, if I'm evaluating 2015 before we get there, I know that when I get to the end of the year, I want to make sure if lifetime learning is one of my values, what did I learn this year? If family is one of my values, how did I invest in my family during 2015? And I want to be able to feel these things and and you know, visualize what it looks like when that happens at the end of the year. <clears throat> I also like to, um, at least every couple of years, I like to go through Stephen Cove- Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, just because it's so practical. You know, Dr. Covey's um, first three principles are these. Number one, he says, be proactive, because our behavior is a result of our decisions not our conditions. So be proactive. <clears throat> it's the opposite of living life in reactive mode. It's why, <clears throat> that's why I take out a blank piece of paper. I don't want a piece of paper that's got all my failures on it and all the reasons that I can't do stuff. I want a blank piece of paper so I can be proactive and I can plan this year in advance. Covey's second principle is called begin with the end in mind. I love this. He says, first, identify those things that are most important to you, most deeply important, visualize what that looks like, and then create and follow a plan to get there. That's why I write from the 
perspective of the end of 2015. Because <coughs> I want to begin with the end in mind right now, so I've got a much better chance of getting to that end. Third principle, he calls first things first. Great question that Covey asks. What is one thing that you could do that if you did on a regular basis would make a tremendous positive difference in your personal life? That is where you want to focus your attention. So if you've got that blank piece of paper and you're thinking about what's most important in 2015, you would better address knowing Jesus. There is nothing more important on that paper. So at the end of the year, as you look back, what did you do to know Jesus better this year? What did you do to get closer to Jesus? What did you do? How did you walk with Jesus this year? What was that relationship like? What things happened in your life to make you love Jesus more? And this isn't just actually for people who go to church every week. I mean, you may be here and you just stumbled in here completely by accident this morning. Maybe a friend dragged you to church. Maybe you made a New Year's resolution. You said, hey, I want to get more spiritual in this next year. And so you found your way into church. The same is true for you. You should make as your first priority getting clear on who Jesus is. You A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about a man is what comes to his mind when he thinks about God. If that's true, you better get really clear on what that means, on who God is, and what it means to have a relationship with him. So that's the first thing that we want to make sure that we're addressing as we look forward to the next year. So this being the last Sunday of 2014, it's only appropriate that we focus on a portion of God's word that gives us perspective on looking forward to the coming year. Would you just join me in prayer as we get started? <clears throat> Father, we want to pray for that team in Mexico. We want to pray for all those parents and all those kids, um, both sent from our church and those, uh, those that live down in Rosarito, Lord. We pray for a tremendous outpouring of your spirit. We pray that people would come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ for the first time as a result of that team down there. And we pray that your spirit would just superintend everything that they do in Mexico. And for us here, Lord, we know that we only change when your spirit uses your word and your people. And so we pray that you would do that, Lord, that through your word, your spirit would take hold of our lives, that you would change us and transform us into the people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, pull out your sermon notes if you haven't already, and um, <clears throat> we're going to dive in. We're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to skip around a little bit in the chapter, so it'll be helpful if you have your Bible open there, and, um, and you can follow right along. Paul says, in the middle of this chapter, and we're going to step backwards, but in the middle of this chapter, um, Paul says this, in verses 8 and 9, he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection. Paul paints this great picture of what it means, what life is all about. It's to know him. But before he gets there, in verses 3 through 7, Paul issues a warning. And before I move forward, I want to make sure that I camp a little bit on this warning that Paul gives us. He says at the beginning of this chapter, he warns that it is possible to fall into a form of religiosity that says, I can do it, and Jesus can help. This form of religiosity that says it's really about what I do that matters. That it's, you know, you may not say that out loud, but it's possible that your life says it all the time. It's the people who come to church and as they leave, they get in the car and they're driving away and they say, I'm going to try harder this week. I'm going to do more this next year. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to try to be a better Christian. It is not what you do that God is interested in. It is not what you do that defines your relationship with God. It is what Jesus has done it's not your performance, it's Jesus' performance on the cross. It's what he did to bring you into a relationship with God. You can't do anything to come into a relationship with God except to trust him. So this, this kind of mantra of I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try to be a better husband, I'm going to try not to look at inappropriate things online, I'm going to try to not be so angry going forward, I'm going to try to just, just muster up my self-will and I'm going to do better this time. It's not what God's calling you to. It's not in your strength. It's not in your power. It certainly is not in your New Year's resolutions, which by the way, 95% are broken by Valentine's Day. It is not in your New Year's resolution. It is only in the power of Jesus Christ. You know, most of us would affirm that intellectually. But think about this. In, in Galatians 3.1, uh, Paul says this, and I, I, this is one of my favorite verses. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit when you first became a Christian? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, did you receive the law by the works, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? With a little more luster and vigor. By the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Thank you. And then Paul says, and this is key, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Answer is no. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? No. no. It is. See, as Christians, we sometimes think, okay, I know that before I was a Christian, I was dead to God and everything else, and I, I believe, and it's only on my belief that I, that I come into a relationship with God, but now it's going to be all about what I do. Now it's going to be, I've got to try harder. I've got to work. I've got to be better. I've got to work more. I've got to do these things to please God, to come into a relationship with God. And Paul is saying, it is still the same after you become a Christian. It is still by the work of the Spirit that we have relationship with God and not what we do. Paul said it this way. He says, if performance could get it done, I would have got it done a long time ago. 
I can outperform any of you. There's no way that we can do what Paul did. He was like this, you know, religious elite. He was born into the right family. He did all the right things. He had all the right ceremonies. He memorized vast portions of God's law. He knew every single law that there was. And he says this, I, in verse 6, I obeyed the law without fault. Anybody here can say that? Okay, so Paul's got us, got us, right? But he says, all of that is worthless. I count all those good works to be rubbish. In the NASB, in the Greek, it means a pile of manure. That's how he looks at his good works. So if you don't hear anything today, I do not want you leaving thinking that it's in your try harder, that it's in your do better, that you come into a relationship with God. You can follow all the rules next year and still miss God. You can do all your New Year's resolutions and still miss God. It is not in what you do. Paul was this super, super Jew, I mean, super religious guy. And he was so, so enthusiastic about what he believed that when the church started to rise up, when Jesus came along, Paul started persecuting the church. And he started dragging Christians before the, the Jewish leaders, and he would have them put to death. That's how much he believed in what he was doing. That's how committed he was. That's how sure he was that he was right. So when this like super religious Jesus hater does a complete 180, we've got to pay attention to what he's saying. Whether you believe or not, you've got to pay attention to this guy. And what he says are two amazing things. Number one, all my religious works that I was so proud of are worthless. And number two, this Jesus hater says the only thing in, of value in life is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's astounding. I try to think of a modern-day equivalent of that kind of turnaround, and I just couldn't even think of one. And in verse 13, Paul shares with us one thing that he does. He says, there's one thing that I do. So whenever an influential person says, there's just one thing, you, know, you always think back to city slickers, right? And Curly looks at Billy Crystal and he says, you know, the secret to life, it's one thing. And he got Billy Crystal's attention, right? If Warren Buffett were here on the stage with me and I said, Warren, is there anything that you could share with us about money? And Warren said, you know, there is one thing. You know, he's like, give me the pen, I'm taking notes. Warren Buffett's got one thing to say, I'm getting it down, right? And that's how it is with Paul. He says, one thing that I do, I forget what lies behind. I just, I, I get rid of it. It is not in anything that you do. All the time, all the works that I did to please God, I'm leaving them all behind. It's nothing. You know, I spent years of my life really feeling pretty proud of my list of do's and don't do's. All the things that I didn't do, and I started to think that that kind of earned me some credit with God. That, that God would be pretty pleased with all of the things that I didn't do. And I became kind of proud in those things. 
And I expected God to show up because I was pulling my part of the bargain. And you know what? That describes a business relationship, right? It's not grace. That's a business relationship. I'll do these things over here, and I won't do these things over here. And God, when I need you, I expect you to show up. And I expect you to show up in the way that I would want you to show up. Because after all, look at all these things that I'm doing. I'm pulling my weight. You ever think like that? You know, I can't believe that this terrible thing has happened to me. I mean, I did everything right. I married a Christian, and he cheated on me. I gave sacrificially to the church, and I found myself in financial hardship. I raised my kids in a Christian home, and they turned away from the Lord. I did all these things, and it didn't work out the way that it's supposed to work out. And we think, God, where were you? Why didn't you show up? And if you think like that, it's as though, for me, like God owes me something because of something that I did. And I think that's a sign that you're keeping track of the good works that you've done rather than leaving them behind. And that's a business relationship. And it's not what God calls us to. He calls us to grace. Paul says, forget about it. Your relationship with God has nothing to do with the things that you've done or the things that you will done. It has only to do with what Christ has done for you. The Bible calls that grace. And God calls us to simply rest in it. We don't work harder. We don't try harder. We just rest harder in what he's already done. But now I got to step back and there's a balancing act. And this whole chapter of of, uh, Philippians 3 are these tensions, these balancing acts, these tensions that the Christians run into because on the one hand, Paul says clearly, it's not about what we do. But on the other hand, he says, we're supposed to do something. In, um, in this chapter, he says, I press on for the goal of perfection. Like, well, really? Perfection? I thought we weren't supposed to do perfection. Um, in 1 Corinthians 9, it says, I run the race in such a way that I might win. And later on in that same chapter, he says, I discipline my body to make it a slave. In Hebrews 12, um, he says that since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So while we're not supposed to be focused on what we've done or what we do, we are supposed to do something. Press on, run the race to win, discipline my body, lay aside sin. How do we reconcile that? It's not about what we do, but we're called to do. How do we reconcile that? I think it has everything to do with our motivation. In Philippians here, Paul is saying very clearly that his goal was to be good enough for God. 
in doing all of those works, his goal was to be good enough to come into a relationship with God. Now, his goal is to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to love Jesus. It's a completely different motivation. The prize is not what we do. The prize is Jesus himself. Maybe this will help. What's the difference between trying and training? Somebody comes to you, and they say, I'm going to try to run the LA Marathon next year. What are the chances that that's actually going to happen? Slim and none, right? Somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I'm training to run the LA Marathon. Now what are the chances? Much better. Much better. So somebody comes along and they say, you know, I'm just going to, this year, in 2015, I'm going to try to be a more patient person. I don't even know what that means, trying to be more patient. But how would we train to be patient. How about driving slower? How, start with the speed limit, you know? <laughs> John Ortberg uh, has a wonderful recommendation. He, he says that he tries to get in the longest line at the grocery store to train himself in patience. You know, I've tried this, and it's a great training technique. I get in the longest line, and the person next to me, they come in the line after me, and they're at the checkout counter before me, and I still got three people. And instead of, like, tearing my hair out trying to figure out how do I get ahead of this person because there's no way they're getting their bags and get out of here before I do, I'm like, that's great. You got to the front of the line, and I got to train in patience. And it changes the way that you look at patience. It's not trying, it's training. How can you train yourself in that? People say, I'm going to be a more loving person this next year. What does that mean? I mean, how do you train to be a loving person? The only way that I know is you've got to spend some serious time with somebody who's difficult to love. That's not easy, right? But who said training is easy? You're not going to go run the marathon by walking around the park a couple times a week. You know, we got to get in there and we got to train and we got to train hard. So maybe the person sitting next to you is the workout equipment that God is going to use to train you in becoming a more loving person this next year. How would that change your perspective? You know, if people say, I made a New Year's resolution, I'm going to be more generous this year. How long does that last? You get to the end of the year and nothing has changed. How would you train yourself in generosity? Well, let me ask you this. How would, you, how would a basketball player train themselves to be better at shooting free throws? Chris? You shoot a lot of free throws, right? The only way to train to become better at free throws is you shoot a lot of free throws. The only way to train to be a more loving person is to work on being loving. You've got to step out in faith first. You can't sit back and just pray, oh God, make me loving this year. You know, it doesn't happen. You've got to train for it. You've got to be in relationships that are difficult and you've got to work through those relationships. You've got to shoot the free throws. If you want to become more generous, the only way to do that is you have to first step out in faith and be generous. You have to be generous with your time, your talents, your treasure. You have to be generous. So what if you did this to train? What if you said, in 2015, I'm going to give away 1% more of my income than I gave the year before? 
And then the following year, I'm going to increase that by 1% again. Now you're training yourself to become more generous. And what you will find is that generosity breaks the power of money in your life. And you will become more generous in all other areas as well. We do this in our annual planning. Every year we try to give away more than we gave away the year before. And it's amazing. It's very easy for Janice. She would just, you know, give, give everything away. It's much more difficult for me. <laughs> but I will tell you that as we have done this, I have become a more generous person because we've trained ourselves in generosity. One last thing about training. Have you ever noticed that it's much easier to train with somebody else? It's hard to train on your own. If you get a training partner, you've got some accountability, you've got some people working together, it's much easier to train. So if you're serious about walking closer with Jesus next year, I would really strongly encourage you to find a training partner or a couple of training partners. I've got four guys I get together with every week at 6 o'clock on Thursday morning or 6.30 on Thursday morning. And we dive into God's word together and we pray for each other, and we encourage each other, and we know what's going on in each other's lives, and we hold each other accountable throughout the week to daily have time in God's word and in prayer. And every one of us has grown in our relationship with God as a result of that training. Uh, it's, just, it, it's just so much better with somebody else when you're training together. You know, the Bible has lots of metaphors about athletes training, running the race so as to win. I already mentioned Hebrews 12. I didn't mention the end of that verse. So it says that um, we're going to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and we're going to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. We don't fix our eyes on ourselves. It's not what I'm going to do. It's not what I'm going to try harder at. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus and being drawn to him. That's how we run the race. So on the one hand, Paul says, I don't want to get caught up in legalism. This trying harder, working harder, mustering up my own self-control. On the other hand, though, he's going to tell us that we can't just float through life saying, whoo, Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. That's all done. I'm going through life. No guardrails. Woohoo! Just, just living life doing whatever I want to do. Why don't you do that? No, really. Why don't you do that? <laughs> it's because sin hurts, right? Sin hurts you and sin hurts other people. And that is not what loving people do. And so Paul is going to issue one more warning. The first warning was against legalism. The next warning is about what I'm going to call a wasted life. And here's how Paul puts it. He says, there are some people whose lives make him cry. Paul is in prison, and he's thinking about people who have lived a wasted life. He writes in verse 18, there are many who I now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. What makes Paul cry? It's a wasted life. 
It's a person ignoring their inner life. It's a person that doesn't spend time with God, doesn't spend time listening to his word, doesn't spend time being prompted by the Holy Spirit. You know, I love what um, Kenton Bishore says. He's the pastor of Mariner's Church where I became a Christian many years ago, and he's my former youth pastor. He says this, the life of a believer is the most challenging, the most difficult choice that you will ever make. It says, I will trust you with my money. I will trust you with my marriage. I will look at your word every day to see what you say is most important. I will listen to your spirit when you prompt me to take courageous steps of faith. I will follow your values. I will live a life of desperate dependence. That is hard. If anyone tells you the Christian life is easy, they are insane. And I couldn't agree more with Kenton. So, this wasted life. Excuse me. Three marks of a wasted life that makes Paul cry. Number one, I think this whole description of a wasted life starts with a person ignoring their inner life, ignoring the time spent with Jesus. There is no substitute. You have to be with God. You have to spend time with Jesus, trust the Holy Spirit when he prompts you to take these courageous steps of faith. Um, and, it, you know, this wasted life is, I don't need to do that. I, you know, I'm okay. I'll go to church once a week. I don't need personal time with Jesus. I don't need to listen to the Holy Spirit. People who, in marriage who don't spend regular time together end up in divorce. Christians who don't spend regular time with God end up living a life that makes people cry. The second characteristic of these people, it says they're seduced by the world. Paul uses the term, their God is their appetite. When you don't build a strong inner life, your appetites take over, your lusts take over, your anger takes over. Your God becomes what controls your life. And if it's not the true God, that becomes a counterfeit God. And that might be materialism, where you're just accumulating more and more and more, and you start to find that it leaves an emptiness in your soul, and it doesn't satisfy. And after a while, rather than you having stuff, stuff has you, and it's become your God. You know, it might be just success and power and prestige, and you just find yourself, you're working later and later at the office, you're working harder, you're running faster, you're trying to climb that ladder. And you find that your family and your other priorities are starting to spin out of control. It could be that sexual temptation has taken control over your life, and what once seemed like a harmless feel-good hit has all of a sudden become a controlling desire, and it's threatening your marriage, and it's threatening your reputation. Paul thinks of these people, and it makes him cry. He's thinking about people who became enemies of the cross. They walked away from the faith. These people did not build a powerful inner life. And as a result, they had no way of controlling their appetites, which became their gods. So, you want a wasted life? There it is. Don't spend regular time with God. Don't listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't 
step out. Don't take courageous steps of faith. Just come to church once in a while. Hope that things get better. If you don't want a wasted life, the only way to build a strong inner life is to have time with God daily. You've got to be in his word. You've got to hear from him. You've got to pray. You've got to talk to him. You've got to bring him your needs and bring him your concerns. You've got to have quiet time where you listen to him, directing and, and you know, moving in your life, prompting you to step out in faith. You know, one of the things that I, I've just loved and I got to give you guys the, the speed reading version of this, but um, years ago, a pastor friend of mine shared this with me, and it just made such a change in my life that I wanted to share it with you. Um, and it's just a daily, simple discipline of journaling. But let me just kind of share what I do. And, and there's nothing magical about this. If you have your own way of doing this, great. If you don't, you might want to try something like this. But what I do is I, I just take out this journal, and each day on the left-hand side, I write the word yesterday. And then I pray, and I just say, God, show me the game film from yesterday. What did I do well? Where did I fail? Was I affirming to people, or did I ignore people? Was I aware of other people's emotions? Were there opportunities that I had that I might have missed? Is there sin that I need to confess? And I just jot that stuff down. I'm just writing quick because it keeps my mind focused. And I under, try to understand my emotional framework. You know, imagine a football team that doesn't watch the game film after Sunday. How are they going to get better? You know, Socrates said a life unexamined is not worth living. This is just examining your life and allowing God to superintend the process. And then I just pull out the scripture and a lot of different ways you can do this. You can just kind of go through a book yourself. You can go through a devotional but um, I just kind of jot notes on the scripture. I make observations, and I, I, I kind of write on the, uh, the kind of the understand, my understanding of the passage and what is it really saying. And then I just try to ask God, you know, how, how, does that, how do you want me to respond to this? How are you trying to change me? How should your word change the way that I interact with you and interact with other people um, this day and this week. And so I just jot some notes and I'm, I'm going through there. And then at the bottom, I write four letters, A-C-T-S. A lot of you have seen this. It's an acronym, ACTS. It just stands for, you know, the A is for adoration. I'm just going to adore God. I'm just going to praise Him for who He is. And then C is confession. I'm just going to jot down some things, you know, that I need to confess to God. And um, Thanksgiving. So T is for Thanksgiving. And every day, I'm just, you know, writing something, a few things that I'm thankful for. And you know what? That has just made me a more thankful person in my life. And then S is for supplication, which is just a uh, big word for, you know, asking God for stuff. And I'm just, I'm just documenting the things. What am I asking God for? So I can go back and I can look at this and I can say, wow, God's been doing some great things. And that doesn't take long, but it gets me connected with God every day. And if you're committed to being with Jesus. If you're committed to loving Jesus more a year from now than you do now, the more time you spend with him, the more you will love him. I guarantee it. One last warning on this, this whole thing of balance, though. And this, this gets me. I mean, it just, it just cuts, me to, cuts me to the quick. John Ortberg, again, he, John says this in um, The Me I Want to Be. He says, the trouble 
with measuring your spiritual life by how much you read the Bible and how much you prayed is that by those measurements, the Pharisees always win. You know, it goes back to this legalism thing. And God is not interested in you checking the box that said, I had my devotion time today. God wants to meet with you. And so again, it's all in your motivation. It's all in why are you there. It's, it's so easy to get into this rut of, got to have my quiet time, got to have my quiet time, got to have my quiet time, check that box off, now I'm on to the next thing. It's all about being with Jesus. So in your devotion time, are you trying to please God more or are you training to be more like him, to be with him? Are you focused on what you can do or are you focused on allowing Jesus to work through your life to accomplish his purposes? So I hope that this morning, I I mean, that you'll make some time over the next few weeks to just get away in a solitary place and do some planning for 2015. How's God speaking to you? What's God telling you to do? Where is God telling you to step out in faith? Take some time. As you do, remember that the single most important thing that you can do in 2015 is loving Jesus, being with Jesus, listening to his Holy Spirit, responding to him in love. And if you will do those things, you will build a powerful inner life that will be able to stand up to the temptations that are going to come. Because I can tell you one thing for sure in 2015, sin is going to come at you hard. And in these times, school is hard, work is hard, family is difficult, there's financial pressures, and that becomes permission giving, right? Like, you don't know the pressure that I'm under. I need a little feel-good hit to just kind of get me going. You don't understand the business world and what these financial pressures are. I need to drink a little bit more. I need a little fantasy, a little loose around the turns on the internet. You know, if you will build a strong inner life by being with God on a daily basis, he will give you the power to resist temptation, to live by his word, and through his Holy Spirit. Remember Hank? Hank went to church. Hank served. Heck, Hank even put money in the offering as it went by. But Hank never changed. Every day, you will make a choice this year. And a strong inner life is only built daily. So it's a choice. And sin's going to be coming at you hard. And you want to be close to Jesus. I don't know what's coming in 2015, but I can tell you this. If you spend time with Jesus, if you spend time allowing God's Spirit to work in your life, you will be prepared for whatever comes, and it's going to be a great year. If you don't, you're going to be like Hank. We don't want any of you to be like Hank. Pray with me. As your uh, heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, um, 
Let me just talk to your spirit for a minute. Some of you are here today and you've been doing all the right stuff. You've been trying hard to be a good husband, a good wife. You've been trying to obey God. But if you're honest, your life could be summarized as, I can do it and Jesus can help. And it's time for you to give up trying harder. It's time for you to just treat that as garbage and acknowledge that apart from Jesus, you can do exactly nothing. He's calling you to rest in his love, rest in his grace, and be changed from the inside out. Others are here today, and you may look good on the outside, but you've never built a strong inner life. And if the truth was known, your God is your appetite. And if you are really truthful, it's starting to spin out of control. For you, God's calling you to rest in his love and in his grace and to be changed from the inside out. Lord, as we approach the freshness of a new year, we want to spend time with you. We want authentic relationship with you. Help us avoid a wasted life of simply following our appetites on one hand and a legalistic life-following rules on the other. Lord, remind us daily that you are the prize. And I pray that 2015 would be a year of authentic, inside-out change in the life of our church as we seek you daily. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do hope as we uh, finish out the year that you will find some quiet time over the next couple of weeks to just get alone with God, wrestle through some of this stuff, and make 2015 an absolutely awesome year with Jesus. Um, have a great year. I'll see you next year. Bye-bye.